Please take them out and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Really excited for the, the chapters we have ahead of us tonight. And uh, we're moving at a good pace, so we're right on schedule for our through the New Testament in three years. So we're really cruising through the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to do that tonight as well. So hold on to your hats, buckle up, and uh, let's get going. So Matthew chapter 16. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and he said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he left them, and he departed. And so we start off this chapter with the word then. So it's kind of fun reading the book of Matthew at this pace because it's just this continual ongoing ministry of Jesus that we're watching unfold right before our eyes. And now what's happening is Jesus is getting scrutinized by the religious authorities. The religious authorities who didn't like what he was doing, they were feeling threatened by him. And so now what, what they're doing is they're, they're saying, can we see a sign? Now, mind you, we just got done seeing Jesus feed the 4,000, before that the 5,000. We've been seeing Jesus do all kinds of miracles, casting out demons, stopping the storms, stopping the wind, giving sight to the blind, healing those who have leprosy, and then they ask for a sign. And Jesus recognizes the hypocrisy of what's in their heart. In other words, Jesus was seeing that when they were asking for a sign, they were demonstrating that they were mere actors. They were mere religious actors. That's what a hypocrite is. It's an actor. It's an actor who does things on the outside, but inside is not genuine to those actions. So those actions are not coming from a heart that loves God. It's an action of a heart that is prideful and desires to be seen well by men. And so when they ask for a sign, we learn that signs are not convincing in and of themselves. We see ministries that are dedicated to science to try to get people excited. And a lot of those signs are merely to authenticate the pastor or the healer or whoever's doing those signs and not Jesus Christ and usually to get money out of people. But see, we have to understand what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, when it's a, a scene of two men, one went to heaven, the other went to hell. And in that scene, the one who went to hell asked that his brothers could be warned about the place that he's in. And Jesus said, if they didn't receive the word, the truth, that which is already at hand, they won't receive any other word. And what, what we see is if we can't accept the truth of Jesus Christ, no sign will do that for us. 
If we have not been set free by the truth that sets us free, we won't, we won't receive Jesus Christ. We'll just always look for a sign. We'll look for sensationalism. We'll look for another thing to get us excited. And so Jesus calls them out. He says that they're hypocrites. He says that they're not authentic. They're not genuine. And so first off, we have to ask ourselves, do we genuinely want Jesus himself? Is the truth of Jesus enough? And he says, if you want a sign, I'm going to raise again from the dead. And Jesus said that previously in Matthew. And even says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So that's the sign. So now we look back on that and we say, is that enough for us to believe? Is there anything more believable than Jesus Christ, than the record of Jesus Christ, than fulfilled prophecy of Jesus Christ? There's nothing more believable. We can make excuses. Sure, we can make excuses. But if we truly don't want to believe, there's no sign that's going to change our hearts. And so in verse 5, he says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. So this bread thing is always a problem for the disciples. We've seen the feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000. It was always about the bread. They didn't have enough bread. And so here we go again. And they forgot the bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. He's saying this again because we don't have, we forgot the bread again. But Jesus being aware of what they are saying, he said, oh, you have a little faith. Why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, which was 12, 12 extra baskets, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 And how many large baskets you took up? Seven. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning the bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so the disciples continue to have this struggle to understand what Jesus is saying. And here we get really to the root of that problem. The root of the problem of their misunderstanding is the lack of faith that they had, which did not allow them to see the spiritual aspects of the things that Jesus was talking about. So because of the lack of faith, all that they could understand is the physical. And it's interesting that Jesus equates when we focus on just the physical things, the earthly things, and we're unable to understand and appreciate the spiritual things, it's a faith problem. So their faith goes back again to Jesus doing these miracles, these two miracles, these two incidences. So these are a a pretty significant thing because it keeps coming up. And so these miracles were meant by Jesus, and he did it twice. So he he fed the 5,000 miraculously, and then soon after that he fed the 4,000 miraculously, and we pointed out as 5,000 men and 4,000 men, so it's probably in the 15 to 20,000 in the 5,000 and the 10 to 15,000 in the 4,000. But 
they weren't connecting because of their lack of faith. They weren't connecting the spiritual aspects and the spiritual lessons that Jesus was trying to get them to understand. And so when Jesus starts to talk about something they needed to understand, and it was, notice it was in regards to what the Sadducees and the Pharisees just asked him. So they asked him for a sign and he called them hypocrites. And then right after that, Jesus used that as an opportunity to explain that there is leaven, there is false doctrine. He wasn't talking about bread. They couldn't get the bread thing out of their mind. But he, he was using that as an example of false doctrine. Now, it's interesting because the false doctrine that we're seeing is hypocrisy. But it comes from two different groups that were, you can look at it as these were opposite groups. Sadducees were maybe more like a liberal, I don't even like to use the word Christian, but liberal Christians. I'll say Christians in quotes. Or progressive Christianity, where, you know, you just, you deny the, the miracles, you take out the supernatural. So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, and they didn't believe in the supernatural aspects, which Jesus is saying, if you don't believe in that, you don't have faith. And then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the legalists. Those were the ones that would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel at the same time. They, they were people who would look for people to make mistakes so they can just crush them and smash them and say, you're not holy like us and righteous like us. They would be those who manufacture rules and then put them on everybody and say, look, you're not following the rules. So they're legalists. But they join together in their opposition to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And it reminds me of how in the tribulation, they're going to be strange bedfellows, if you will. They're going to be people in the world uniting that you don't think ever should unite because they're going to be uniting in the Antichrist. And they're going to be forming this union, this one world religion. And I believe this one world religion will really just be a conglomeration of a lot of different religions that just all fall under obedience to the Antichrist. So they basically will worship government first and then worship the one of the government, the Antichrist. But it's interesting how all these groups will come together. But what these groups have in common is that they're of the world and not of the kingdom of heaven. And so because they're not of the kingdom of heaven, they are able to unite together to fight against the kingdom of heaven. But see, in the tribulation, the church is going to be taken out. Right now, the church is in the way. And the Bible says that the Antichrist won't be revealed until the restrainer is taken out. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. So the church is taken out. The world unites and worships the Antichrist. But all in all, what, what really could be said is it's humanism against Christ in the kingdom of heaven. And humanism can unite under the banner of we are the world. We are of the world, in the world, the world is it. This is our home. So the world can unite in that. They can coexist, if you will, in that endeavor. So Jesus calls that out. And, and what he's calling out then, this is really important, is hypocrisy. And he's making this big emphasis about hypocrisy. He's making this big thrust and he's telling his disciples hypocrisy can come on both sides of the coin. It can come from a liberal side and it can come from a legal side. But it can still be 
hypocrisy. And so what's important for us to know is that our actions should come from our relationship with God. We should never feel like we have to perform to please people or prove to people or something. We, we should naturally be what we are in Christ. And that's the thing that always is uh, mystifying to me, that if we're all believers and we all have the Holy Spirit, then it should be, we should be able to really get along easily. We should just all want to glorify God. It should, should seem like that. But one, we, Jesus told us that in the church, there's going to be wheat and chaff. There's going to be tares sown in. So there'll be false, hypocritical people, people that are not genuine within the church. But then also, we're not all fully surrendered to the Lord either. So we're all kind of in different places in our walks. And really those places in our walks have a lot to do with the place of our surrender to the Lord in our walks. So when we get into the flesh, we can have problems. And that's why it's so important just to be aware and understand when we're in the flesh versus when we're in the spirit. And so Jesus goes on. He's talking about this hypocrisy and it um, progresses into verse 13 where it says, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, which in Israel, this is one of my favorite places. If not my favorite place, it's hard to say, but one of my favorite places. So what's happening is Jesus is moving away from the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee region, pretty much directly north to the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon uh, actually is a place in the winter it gets snow on the top of the mountain. They actually, you can actually ski there at certain times a year. It's the highest place in Israel. And in this place, it's really amazing because you can still see this if you go there today, but they have shrines built into the walls to false gods. It was a place known for false god worship. And they had a, a spring that came as, as the water would come down or the snow would melt from Mount Hermon and um, it would develop into these springs. And they have, this, they have this sort of cave. You can go there and see it now. And this cave has water coming from underneath, so sort of like a hot spring kind of thing. And what they would do is they would throw animals in there as a sacrifice. And if the animal came back up, they would say that the sacrifice wasn't received. But if it didn't come up, they would say the gods received the sacrifice. In particular, the god Pan, P-A-N, would be, it's also Ban, B-A-N. This god would be, it's the, the god that would be a half man and then half goat. So that would be a, a famous place that uh, they would go and worship Pan, this, this god that they would worship. This is where Jesus is, and the, the context is important now. Jesus took them there, this particular place where there's all sorts of false gods. And remember, Jesus is talking about the hypocrisy. He takes them to this particular location. And he says this right at this location. It's amazing. Who do men say that the Son of man is. Who do people say that I am? So this is the this is the key. This is what everybody's struggling with. Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of David? Is he the one the Bible talked talked about? And and through the course of Jesus's ministry, he has been fulfilling those prophecies because of that. And so it, it's interesting because now 
Jesus gets them to really make a decision. Like it's not okay anymore just to have a general idea of Jesus. And, and Jesus knows that he's shown them enough, taught them enough, explained enough that they, they, they can make a decision now. And this is what's important for us. Have we made a decision? Who do you say that Jesus is? So is it okay to have a general Jesus? A general Jesus is not a saving Jesus. A, a Jesus that is, uh, when people say a good teacher, a good pro, uh, prophet, a good man, or, or whatever, that's, that's not a saving Jesus. Because a good teacher can't save us. A prophet can't save anybody. And in this, with this backdrop of false gods, Jesus wanted them to know that he couldn't be among them as one other God. That it, it wasn't okay to put him in the hall of false gods. But they had to make a distinction. So he's bringing that out. And he says, but, yeah, verse 13 who do men say that the son of man am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, right? Herod thought he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Some say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's what people are saying up to this point. But in verse 15, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am. And Simon Peter answered and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the thing right there. Correctly identifying the Messiah, the Savior, the one and only Savior of the world, God incarnate, Emmanuel with us and Peter identifies him. And remember, up to this point, they're they're not sure. They're they're confused. They're talking about it. There's a murmur, maybe. And as soon as the some of the masses are like, we think that might be him, could it be him? And then the Pharisees swoop in and and say, No, he's of Bez uh, or the devil, he's the Lord of the flies. The power that he has is not of God. And so Jesus is saying, you, you have to make a decision. And, and so we see it's an individual thing. Salvation's not a group deal, right? You don't join a church and then because you're part of a church, then you go. It's, it's an individual deal. Who do you say that I am? And he confesses it. This is amazing. We got to this point to where now it's the, the confession, and this is it. This is the revelation. And so Jesus in verse 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah. Bar means son of. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. So it was a uh, revelation. This was a revelation, a spiritual revelation. And he's suggesting that you can't intellectually figure it out, that there's a revelation, there's something that God does in a heart of a person to illuminate the truth about Jesus. And as Jesus says that to Peter, now now what we have is the revelation of who Jesus is and what that means, what that means. So remember, this is the first time we've, we've seen that like this. And we see Jesus authenticate that. And that's important because Jesus is... is agreeing with and acknowledging that he is God. 
right? So if somebody tells you Jesus never said he was God, well, that's a whole nother, that he did. But here, he, he's basically, they said he was God, and he's saying, blessed are you. Yes, this didn't originate from you, Peter. This originated from the Father who showed you this. And then in verse 18, he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And the word Peter means small rock. And on this rock, that word is different. That means big rock. That's very important. Peter, little rock. On this big rock, and mind you, the background would show and demonstrate that in this area was a huge, massive rock. It was the base of the mountain. And no doubt Jesus is saying, Peter, you're your little rock. And upon this rock, and he'd be saying the, showing the difference. And it's, it's important because uh, Catholics believe that Peter is the rock that the church is built on. And thank God he's not. <laughs> it's two different words. So what is the rock Jesus is speaking about when he says, on this rock, I will build my church the first time we've seen that word church. This, this is where Jesus tells, okay, what's going on here is going to be a church. What does that word mean? It means called out ones, assembly of people called out. That's all that word means. The church are people that are called out from the world to assemble together as a people unto God. That's what the church is. This is the first time we see this. So they wouldn't know this word, what it means. And Jesus is telling Peter, little rock, upon this rock, I will build my church. Who builds the church? He does. We don't. If we think it's our marketing and skill and talent that builds the church, we might be building something, but only if Jesus builds it is it the church. He will build the church and what will happen the gates of Hades will what? Not prevail. Why does a gate not prevail? Do gates attack? Have you ever seen a gate attack somebody? Gates don't attack is because the church storms the gates of Hades. That's why the world hates the church. Because the church is light and the church is light that comes in to darkness and we cannot be stopped. The church cannot be stopped. But only the church that allows God to be in, in, in control of that church, to be the head of the church. When man takes over the church, which we see going on today, the gates of Hades can stop that. They will stop that. But the church that God's in charge of, that he is... The one who's the head of the church can't be stopped, and it won't be stopped. We know the church will go all the way until it's raptured out, and then it'll come back at the end of the tribulation. Church will never be stopped. Have people tried to stop the church? Do they still try to stop the church? What's the most effective method today of stopping the church? It's coming from within. It's false doctrine. It's leaven. It's pandering to the world it's worldliness whenever you see those sort of things if the church looks like more like the world than it does the kingdom of heaven then then that's a worldly church and don't don't buy the well we're trying to be relevant or we're trying to connect to more people we're trying to well jesus never did that jesus never compromised the truth the truth never hid the truth never said i need to get more people following me so we need to water it down jesus didn't do that nor should we. A true church is a church where Jesus is in charge. And how is Jesus in charge? Because we submit to him. And how do we submit to him? By submitting to his word. How does Jesus, the head of the church, have the authority in the church? By the word of God. 
So then it's not some person just saying a bunch of stuff and people making up stuff. That's what we see today. People just making stuff up. Where'd you get that? See, Jesus says, and this is a confidence that we should have, we're never, the church will never be stopped. So he says in verse 9, he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Not yet. It's not time yet. But see, what, what Jesus is saying is, now this authority that I have that you've witnessed telling his disciples, I'm going to pass it on to you. And this key is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And the key to the kingdom of heaven is the message that's been given to the church. So this message, the gospel, what we're learning, if we proclaim that and someone receives that, they've opened up the kingdom of heaven to themselves. And we've been put in charge of the key, which is like the message. And if somebody rejects that, then, then that's bound on earth. So the kingdom of heaven won't be open to them. So, so here's what we need to, to really take from this. The church is built on the correct identification of who Jesus is. That's the foundation that we're on. It's Jesus Christ, not a general Jesus, but the Jesus declared in the Bible and authenticated by his works. That's the church, and that's what we build the church upon. And anything that threatens that, we don't want it. We need watchmen in the church to watch the false doctrine, to watch the leaven, to watch the hypocrisy, to watch the worldliness. We need to get rid of it. We don't want that. We just want Jesus and the Jesus that's revealed in the word. And remember, so this is important because remember who he's telling this to. The disciples, they're going to be the ones that take this message. So from that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. So imagine this prophecy. This is a real-time prophecy. So they have the Old Testament prophecies, and Jesus is telling his disciples exactly what's going to happen to them, which wasn't on their grid at all. So he, he's very specific. So think about this. If, if Jesus wasn't truly who he said he was, that would be able to be proven because he's saying very specific things. Watch this. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the chief or the elders and the chief priests. So he's even saying exactly who he will suffer from and the scribes and he'll be killed. Okay, completely off the radar. So, so far tracking really good. You're the Messiah. We're right here with you. We're following you. We got the answer right. This is going to be amazing. And then he says he's going to be killed. Wait a second. That wasn't on their script. That wasn't in their plans. But then he says, and then he's going to be raised on the third day. He even says the, the day. So imagine people want to compare Jesus to other religious leaders you can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus put it out there. And the disciples, until Jesus rose again on the third day, they didn't put it all together. It was, it was this. So Jesus is sort of front-loading their understanding, knowing that they won't quite get it right now. But when he 
he raises again, they see him raised again, then they'll believe. So then in verse 22, then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so this is amazing because in just, I don't know how long this took between the confession and the rebuke, but probably not very long. He went from the mountaintop to the gutter. But this is so good because it's so insightful. What was the difference? When he declared Jesus the Messiah, there was a revelation and he he went with it. But now what Jesus was saying didn't fit with the way he saw things. And Jesus says the reason that Satan got a foothold on you to cause you to say something that was so wrong and to even take actions against me, which Peter wouldn't have known at that time, but would have canceled out the saving of the world and the shedding of sins for all who believe in him. And Peter Peter didn't know all that, right? All he knew was He didn't like that, what Jesus was saying. This is how we go from hero to goat. We're all susceptible to this. We're all those who, sometimes we amaze ourselves. We're like, wow, where did that come from? And it's the Lord. We're like, wow, did that come from me? And then soon after that, We can say or do the most ridiculous, dumb things. And the difference is we're not mindful of the things of God. Jesus is saying our our minds are too set on the things of this world. And this is what Jesus keeps trying to get his disciples to expand in, that their faith would help them see more spiritually the things that are going on. And so Peter, because of his determined position in the way he wanted things to be, actually became a vessel for Satan to use. And we can too. That's why it's so important to look what Jesus says next. Because Jesus explains this. And this is, this is amazing. So in verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, and I think that's important because it's clear to me in in the Bible that the door is open to anyone who wants to come. And so there are five-point Calvinists that will say, that God's atonement is limited. And I don't believe that. I believe that the door is open to anybody that wants to come. And I don't believe God made somebody who never had the opportunity to go to heaven. So anyway, that's another thing. But he says, if anyone desires to come after me, that's where it all starts, a hunger, a desire for God. But look what he says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, if you're going to hold on to your way and hold on to the way you want things and hold on to yourself and hold on to your own will and and like like Peter was doing, if you're going to do that, you'll lose your life. Whoever loses 
his life, notice, for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And so what Jesus is saying, this is so important because we see this in our society. This is what's happening a lot to the churches. In many cases, they're telling people, you don't have to lose your life. You can stay doing the sinful acts that you're doing. Keep, keep doing that, and God loves you anyway. And Jesus says you have to deny yourself in order to come into a relationship with him. You can't just say, I'm born this way, and I just do whatever I want. Jeffrey Epstein you know who that is, created an island and built a mansion to transport sex traffic young ladies to do whatever he wanted to do to them and invite very powerful people to join him in doing what they wanted to do to those people. And you know what he said? He said, here at my island, I'm the most myself. I feel like I'm myself. And I've heard people say that. You know, I just, this makes me feel most myself. Jeffrey Epstein believed that. So you're right in line with him if you think, I'm just going to be myself. But Jesus said, no, you have to deny yourself. Right? You have to come to a point and say, say, you know, no, Lord, I'm wrong. This sin's wrong. That we are all born with an inclination to sin and it, it takes all different flavors and shapes right so why would we just pick out one sin and say well that one's okay times have changed when god says it's an abomination so in order to be saved we have to deny her we have we have to say no and if we don't ever deny ourselves then we're not following him we have to deny ourselves and then he says take up our cross what does that mean so We have to get to a place to say, I'm not just going to do whatever I want to do and do whatever I feel like I want to do. We're saying we will not repent and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And like I've been saying the last few weeks or so, it's much better not to do the thing that we want to do that's causing guilt and shame and ultimately causes us to be cast out of God's presence forever. It's better not to do that and then to have Jesus instead of that. That's much better. But when Jesus says, deny yourself and then take up your cross, what he's saying is, we surrender to God's will and God's plan. So in order to follow God, we have to deny ourselves and then say, Lord, What's your plan? What's your will? And then we say, Lord, that's what I want. So that gets into the the very core of our being is when we exercise our will. And we're going to either exercise it in accordance to God's will, and we usually have to deny ourselves to do that because we're born sinners, or we're going to exercise it against God's will and fight God's will, and resist God's will. And we can say we're following God, we're a Christian. We can say all that, but remember, talking about Jesus was talking about the hypocrisy. We can say all that we want. But what it comes down to, if we're truly following Jesus, we're not following ourselves. And we're following his way. And Jesus demonstrated this, this the most at the cross. That's, what, that's the example that we have is at the cross... That's where Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. So we're willing to follow God no matter what that means. So we don't count the cost. We don't decide what's better or worse. We just say, your will be done. 
And so if we're trying to save our life, trying to hold on to our life, trying to protect ourselves, trying to have our way, then we're going to lose our life. But when we lose it for his sake, then we save it. There's some irony there. Because when we lose our life to Jesus, we gain abundant life. There's nothing better than to lose our life to Jesus Christ. And then when we lose it, we gain it. And Jesus is not a debtor to anyone. Right? He's not going to say, I'm going to take all this stuff and ruin everything. What he does is say, you give me your life and watch what I'll do. Watch me bless it. Watch me do amazing things. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But those of you who have walked through some difficult times, that's when you find out how good God is. That's when you find out how amazing he is. And then in verse 28, he says, I surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So some people can really have a hard time with that particular statement because it seems like Jesus is saying to his disciples that his kingdom's going to come to earth before they die. All of that is solved if you take away the chapter break. This is not a good chapter break. So Jesus is saying, some of you here, you're going to see me. You're not going to die until you see me in the kingdom. Then watch what happens. Verse 1, chapter 17. Now, after six days, so this is connecting that to the previous verse. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about you're not going to die. You're going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is what this is. They're going to see, they're going to get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus has been talking about in the book of Matthew. So they, they go up on this high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying and also talking to Elijah and Moses about what Peter didn't want him to do, about his departure, about his death, about his leaving. So they're up on a high mountain, Peter, James, and John, and they see Jesus transformed. That, that word transform means metamorphosis, metamorphosized. Uh, this is Jesus displaying his true glory that was hidden by his flesh. And as they see Jesus, they get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And they're there with him. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Moses representing the law of God. Elijah representing the prophets of God. And remember, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? So now we get the scene. And I believe there's, there's different thoughts, but I believe this is at the top of Mount Hermon where Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, which would be right there. And so in verse 4, Peter, he answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, he got interrupted. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased Hear him. 
Now think about how significant this is. This appearance, this revelation comes after Peter made the declaration of who Jesus was. Now Jesus is showing him and he's showing him the kingdom. The reason this is so important is because these were the guys that were going to be willing to give their life to testify to these things who Jesus said he was. And if you saw something like this and all the other things that Jesus saw, you would too probably no doubt easily give your life for these things, knowing how important they were. So Peter gets interrupted and the other gospels tell us, I forget which one, but I think it's Luke tells us that Peter didn't know what to say. So he just blurted out, hey, let's, let's make tabernacles here. And remember some of the significance of that. Peter didn't want Jesus to die. So he's like, okay, well, let's just not go back down and let's just stay here. Then this is heaven. Let's just do the heaven thing here. He still didn't like that whole thing. So he's like, oh, let's just build tabernacles. We'll just stay here then. No problem. Still not fully okay with what Jesus was doing. He, he wasn't even okay when Jesus came to be taken in the garden, right? He tried to cut off the soldier Malchus's head and missed and hit his ear. But he just resisting this so much. He just hated the thought of Jesus dying. But what's interesting is Jesus told him he had raised the third day too. It's almost like they forgot that. Like they just honed in on the negative. But don't you think that would be pretty cool too? It's like, okay, well, he said he's going to raise in three days. So that's good. That's even better. But the Peter just could not get that out of his head. And so Jesus here is continually teaching him and reaching out to him to get him to understand. And, and now he hears the voice of God the Father ordaining Jesus, recognizing Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. A common reaction. But Jesus came and he touched them and he said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I love that. So this whole scene focuses in to just seeing Jesus. I think that's a lot of what heaven is. Just seeing Jesus. And it says in verse 9, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Which is uh, Malachi 4. 5 actually says that Elijah will come before Jesus would come. So they're asking about that. And in verse 11, Jesus answered and he said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming. He's coming first and he will restore all things. That's a direct quote from Malachi 4 or 5. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So what's going on here? So it is true that Elijah the prophet will precede Jesus in his coming. But Jesus says, and if you remember John the Baptist's father, 
Zechariah the priest was told that his son, John the Baptist, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he was a type of Elijah. And the disciples realized that that's what Jesus was talking about, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so here we have the explanation by Jesus himself of the two comings. His first coming where the forerunner, John the Baptist, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then his second coming, which in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses are Elijah and probably Moses, as we see here. But I want you to note something. What is Jesus doing? Moses represents what? The law. He was iconic for the children of Israel. And Elijah, too, was iconic. He represented the prophets. What did the law and the prophets do? They communicated God to them. The law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, they were communicating God to them. And so on the mountain, Jesus showed that he wasn't like them. He was above them. He was showing he wasn't on the same plane, but he was their Lord. He was their creator. And so he's getting Peter to understand all these things. That, and this is exactly what we see in our society today where there's this downgrade of a more palatable Jesus that people like. But what Jesus was saying is that he's not like Moses. He created Moses. Moses gave his word. He's not like Elijah. He created Elijah, and Elijah spoke about him. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, that's what he was pointing out. That's one of the things he was showing them. And so he's saying, this is the time where I've come in my first coming. And that should have been significant for them because they were geared on the overthrow of the Roman Empire and God's kingdom coming to earth first, and yet Jesus was coming to save sinners first, but he will come later to the earth. And the disciples understood this, so that's good. Verse 14, And when they had come to the multitude, so they come down from the mountain, and a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. And that word literally translates to moonstruck or lunatic. Lunatic, luna is like the moon. That's the word lunatic, lunatic comes from uh, the, the word for moon. So it was thought in those days that kind of like the werewolf thing, a full moon brings out all the lunatics. And this man has a son who is, he says an epileptic, but really is a, he's a, a lunatic. And we find out he's demon-possessed, and he's bringing him to Jesus. And it says he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and into the water. So the demon was trying to throw him into fire and trying to drown him. So imagine a parent seeing your kid being controlled by a demon and the demon trying to hurt him this severely. And so he says, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. And Jesus answered and he said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, why could we not cast out the demon? So remember, Peter, James, and John, they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. The rest of the disciples were down below, and while they were down below, this man brings his child to them. And they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus says, it was because, verse 20, it was because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have the faith 
as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So Jesus pinpoints an issue, and the issue was faith. The issue was their lack of or minimal amount of faith that was not up to the task of the evil that was before for them. So Jesus says that this kind does not come out. So he's probably talking about the ranks of demons. The demons are in ranks and order. So he's probably saying this is one of the higher ranking or more difficult, more powerful demons. And he's telling his disciples, he, he said, it would have been possible for them too, but they didn't have enough faith to do that. And what he was saying, he gave the illustration. He wasn't talking about literally. He's not talking about if we have a little bit of faith, we can go around and rearrange the mountain ranges and things like that. That would make, really, that would be just make no sense. That would just be something we'd do. I'll check this out, you know, watch that mountain move. But he was using that as an illustration to say it's so important that we have an unwavering, undoubting faith in what God can do in the face of evil. And when we're not sure of that, what we will have a tendency to do is to enlist our own strength or our own abilities to try to deal with the situation. So we, we do that practically all the time. We try to fix things ourselves because we, we don't think that, that God can do it or won't do it. And, and that's why he says this kind of only comes out by prayer and fasting because prayer is, is total dependence on God and fasting is total independence from ourselves. So what he's saying is that the faith that we need to overcome these particular evil situations is an unwavering faith in the power of Jesus Christ. And he says that is a faith that can move mountains, but in context, it's a faith that overcomes evil. So verse 22, he says, Now while they were staying in Galilee... So they're back in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. And get this, they will kill him. So he's telling them again, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. They, they just seemed, they couldn't get into the third day thing. They just kept focusing on the, the death thing. Again, they were at this point unable to see by faith a big picture of everything that was happening. We do that all the time. This is what Jesus was trying to break them of. They're just too focused on earthly things, too focused on how things are going in this world. And Jesus, your, your faith will expand into this bigger picture that will put everything else in perspective and give you a great peace as you understand that God himself is working all these things out together for good. So it's our faith that expands this picture and our minds are just not hyper-focused on our temporary things, on our problems, on our issues, on the, but it, it expands and puts those things in perspective and they can even rejoice in the Lord because of that. So in verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, uh, Capernaum this was Jesus' headquarters as he ministered in this uh, region of the Galilee and where Peter lived. Those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter said, yes, but he really didn't know. 
And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. So Jesus knew that Peter was like, I said yes, but I'm not sure really. So Jesus anticipated him. <laughs> and he said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? So a temple tax would be for the temple that was in Jerusalem, but they're in Capernaum. So they would, every 20-year-old male Jewish man was obligated to pay a temple tax to be taken to the temple and just be for the upkeep of the temple. And so Jesus wasn't doing that. And so they're, they're like, well, how, Peter, how come your guy doesn't pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, oh, he does, but I don't know, does he? And then... Then uh, Peter is then told by Jesus this specific statement. And he, he's saying, in those times, the Romans, the Roman emperor's family would not, they wouldn't pay taxes because it'd be kind of ridiculous because the taxes pretty much go to the emperor. So Jesus is saying, do the sons of the kings, do they pay taxes? Of course they don't. And Peter said in verse 26, it's the strangers that pay the taxes. And then, then Jesus said, then the sons are free. So the, the sons don't have to pay. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. I'm the son of the God of the temple. Why, why do I have to pay the temple tax? <laughs> but nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea and cast in a hook, which for Peter would be embarrassing. He wasn't a hook fisher. He was a net fisher, right? <laughs> little boys, little girls, they go get a little hook and put a worm on. Peter was a commercial fisherman, right? He threw nets out there, right? But it's interesting. Jesus said, get a hook and go out. He's probably hoping none of his buddies see him. And he goes out in the sea and he, uh, it says, and, and take the fish that comes up first. So it's a very specific fish. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. So isn't this just so amazing that Jesus is saying, I am the son of the owner of the world. But you know what? Peter, go out and, and fish, and I'm going to show you my power over everything and just give it to them so you don't stumble. They're not ready for it. They're not ready to handle it. And so, again, imagine what this did to Peter. All these things are adding up to Peter being able to take this mantle and this teaching and carry it out and spread it to what we know today is the truth of Jesus Christ that sets men free. Amen. Chapter 18. No, I'm just kidding. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here and just pray a blessing on them as they go. Fill them to the full with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night.